And let's pray together. Father, we desperately need you. Every day, every hour, we, we need you. And this morning, God, we need you to miraculously unite us. We know, God, we are very mindful and aware that we are not all of our family physically gathered together in one place as we normally are on Sunday mornings, but instead we are scattered all throughout. But God, even though that is the case, we know that we are still united as your family. And it is a great reminder that we are united with our family all across the globe on any given Sunday when we are worshiping together. We are not just worshiping you in our families or in our churches and our church buildings, but we are worshiping you together across the world, united by the blood of Jesus. And so I pray we would be very mindful of that this morning and that we would be mindful that it is your blood, Jesus, that unites us. So God, as we look at the cross and look at the crucifixion, may we be reminded that you redeemed us and bought us and formed us as your family, as your sons and daughters, to worship you for all eternity and to enjoy you. God, we love you. We are thankful for this day. Amen. So as we continue in Mark here, we get to this place of the the crucifixion. And it seems like kind of a strange thing for us to even be talking about on this first Sunday where we're all scattered, talking about the most gruesome and most abhorrent story in, in all of Scripture. Because when you do read the account of the crucifixion, it is horrible. It was a, an inhumane way to die. Jesus, we know, and, and anyone who was crucified, stripped naked, beaten mercilessly. He carried his own crossbar and then nailed to a cross. Nails piercing through nerve endings. Eventually leading to suffocation by drowning. It's a horrible, horrible scene. I remember years ago when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out. And people were horrified by the scenes in that movie. And there was a lot of debate in in that time. There was a debate over... Is this really necessary? Do we really need to see a depiction of this? Well, according to the authors of the Gospels, the answer is yes. Mark, as we've talked about many times, is not known for giving a lot of details. He often is is very succinct in his accounting of all the different stories of the life of Jesus. But he spares us nothing when it comes to the suffering of Jesus as he heads to the cross. Why? Why is it so necessary for us to feel the weight of the suffering of Jesus? Because it is in the brutality of the cross, the anguish and the suffering of Jesus that we see 
that we are able to see the depth of our sin, to see our desperate need for a Savior, and to see the extent of God's incredible love for us. I've actually, in my own devotional times, I've been reading through Leviticus, where it outlines how all the sacrifices are to be done in the Old Testament. And it is gory, and it is detailed. The sacrifices were a reminder of the depth of the people's sin and their need for forgiveness, their need to be made right before God. And so they made sacrifices, the blood of goats and lambs and bulls, atoning for their sins, making right what was wrong. And the crucifixion is in part our reminder of the great evil of mankind and our need to be made right before God. If you look in Mark 15, starting in verse 16, it says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And the scene is just Horrifying, the perfect Son of God who had been healing people and loving people and rallying the people to, to understand the message of the kingdom of God, one of repentance and one of forgiveness. And they are now mocking his lordship, making a fake crown of thorns and, and putting it on his head and burying it into his head. And as the blood drips down, looking at him and mocking him, saying, Hail to the king of the Jews and kneeling down in fake respect. And at the root of this sin is this idea of mocking the lordship and the kingship of Jesus. The root of our sin and of the sin of these people here is the desire to be God. I am my own God. You are not my God. And so they mock his claims. It's the same sin as the sin from the garden. You know better than God. He doesn't really love you. He doesn't really know what's best for you. You need to look out for yourself. And what we find through this is that the problem isn't just that mankind does evil things. It's not just that we mess up and do wrong things or evil things. It is that our hearts are evil. That we actually desire evil. John 3.19 says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Tim Keller says, and I'm paraphrasing, that hell is just mankind getting exactly what they desire. To be their own gods without any intervention from the true God. No common grace, no working in the hearts of men, just mankind left to themselves to be their own gods. And what we find in those situations is that what our hearts truly desire is darkness. Because God is light. And to be apart from him is darkness. 
That's why one of the ways that the Christian viewpoint of the world is not why do so many bad things happen to good people. It's why do so many good things happen to evil people. God is constantly holding us back from all the evil in our hearts. He restrains it. He, he, he quenches it. He sometimes suppresses it. He is constantly sparing us the full brunt of evil that is in the hearts of man, that we don't see it even on its full display. It's always just a glimpse of what we would have if God completely left us and forsook us. We don't like to use that word evil. We don't like to think of ourselves in that light. We just like to think of ourselves as basically good people who just make mistakes sometimes. Ray Ortland points out that we love to use softer language when it comes to our sin. We, we use phrases like, well, we, you know, we make mistakes, we slip up, we have flaws, we have imperfections. The question is, how, how often do you refer to your sin as evil? Because that's what it is. Your sin, my sin, it isn't, it isn't just a mistake, it's not just some, some flaw or slight imperfection. It is evil. And in the suffering of Jesus, all of that is laid bare. In the crucifixion, the curtain is pulled back and the horror of what he endures puts on display the horror of my sinful heart. What is done to him, listen, what is done to him is what my flesh wants done to him on a daily basis. To mock him as king, to assert myself as my own God. The root of the sin in our heart is the same root that led people to beat and murder the perfect son of God. If you think that's a stretch, remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that if you have anger in your heart against your brother, then you are guilty of murder. If you have lust in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. Why? Because it's the same root. And if you live your life as your own God, then you mock Jesus like everyone else in that crowd with a crown of thorns and chiding words. And you say, whoa, I don't do anything like that. I, I don't do that. I, I, I worship Jesus. I go to church. I, I'm not like that. I certainly don't think I would have done that. But we must never forget that the same people who called for him to be crucified were the same ones who just days earlier were singing Hosanna and welcoming Jesus as a king. Imagine that I told you that I was a pretty good gardener, which those of you who know me know that I am not. But if I told you that I was, and, and my proof for it was that there are no weeds in my garden right now. Like I don't see any weeds. I look out there and I don't see anything. In fact, it's been that way for several months. Now you would likely respond with, well, the weeds are still there. They're just dormant. Like this just, there's snow all over it. That's why you don't have weeds growing up. You know that come spring, the weeds are going to grow in my garden like crazy. Given the right environment, what is in the heart will come out. If there are weeds in the garden, they will come out. 
If you've ever been in a stressful situation, you know about this. Anytime where, where, where all these circumstances come together and, and you're stressed out and then you, you end up saying something that you regret or you do something that you feel like is totally out of character for yourself and you say, I can't, I can't believe I acted that way or that isn't like me. I'm not usually like that. I don't know why I did that. I don't know what was going on in my head. I don't know what came over me. Those are the true desires of our heart coming out. Weeds that were lying dormant that have now grown. And so many of us walk through life thinking that the weeds in our heart aren't so bad, but really they've just been suppressed by the environment. And the brutality of the cross is partly God saying, look, this is a glimpse into the desires of your heart unfiltered by social norms or by fear or by lack of power, just laid bare. And that is evil. Imagine what kind of evil, that kind of evil that we see taking place in this account, imagine it it being let go in our own justice system. Imagine somebody, that happening to somebody today in our justice system saying like, you know what, don't worry about it. That's not actually evil. It was maybe just a mistake. They probably shouldn't have done that, but we'll just make them promise not to do it again. We wouldn't stand for it. We would look at that and say, that's not justice. We need justice. And so if we who are evil can't handle these injustices, how much more would our heavenly father who is perfectly good, demand justice. Not just for what we see here, but for every little girl who is sold into slavery. For every victim of every heinous crime. For every child who goes hungry while we stockpile and waste food. It's evil. And God makes all wrongs right. And this is a glorious and terrifying truth. It's glorious because every action that has ever brought you pain is accounted for and will be paid for. Just think about it. That means you don't need to plan revenge for someone or to get them back. You don't need to worry that a person got away with what they did to you or to a person that you care about. God promises, I will call account. I will call to account every sin that has ever been committed, every wrong, and I will make it right. I won't sweep it under the rug. I won't just say it's no big deal. I will make it right. But that's also terrifying because it means that all the wrongs I have been guilty of will be made right. That God will call me to an account. God sees it all and in the right time will call it to account whether they were punished here on earth or not. We have earthly feeble attempts at justice, but God has perfect holy justice. That's why they went through all the ceremonies to offer sacrifices in the Old Testament. They were, these sacrifices were a constant reminder of the depth of their sin and their need to be made right before God. And the sins of man would be placed on the lamb and the sacrificed lamb's blood would atone for their sins. 
And that is why John prophetically says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as Jesus approaches him. It is why Peter says, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God makes all things right. And he does it not with the blood of an animal or with our own blood, but with the precious blood of Jesus. He's saying it's, it's like those old sacrifices. They were all pointing to this, except this one is imperishable. It lasts forever. How is it imperishable? Because on the cross, Jesus not only atones for our sins, but he makes us righteous before God. That's one of the craziest things you could possibly imagine. See, if the problem was just with the things we do, if the problem was just that I do wrong things, then the answer would be to stop doing wrong things. The answer would just be to change my behavior. And unfortunately, this is the Christianity that many people believe in, but it is a false gospel. The problem isn't that I just do bad things. The problem is that my heart desires evil. And so the answer to that is that I need a new heart. We don't need to just do righteous things. We need to be righteous. So Paul utters this incredible line in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what we see is that the Lamb of God not only takes away the sins of the world, but he gives righteousness to all who believe. Martin Luther calls this the glorious exchange. Our sin for the righteousness of Jesus. We look at verse 29, we see all of this kind of come to bear and ends up in one of the most ironic statements of the gospel. People, as people are mocking him, they say, verse 29, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. That line, he saved others, he cannot save himself, is so ironic because it is because he refused to save himself that he saves others. It's because he didn't come down from the cross 
that others would see and believe. The irony of their statement is just so thick. Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Because he stayed on the cross, we now see and believe. He became the sacrifice. His blood, the payment for all the sins of the world. And through that, he saved those who trust in him. And so we know this story and we hear it. And the question that we should be asked, asking at this point, the question we should be left with at this point is why? Why? And my hope is that all the children who are listening would be able to give us this answer. The most famous verse in the Bible John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because he so loved us. So we see why the apostles don't hold back on the suffering of Jesus. They lay it bare and it is brutal. But it is in that brutality of the cross that we are able to see the depth and the horror of our sinful hearts on display. The need for justice in that. But then we also see in that horror the extent of God's love. For God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul, in that famous passage in Romans 5, is saying, you want to know the depth of God's love? He's building this case that God's love is this foundation. That's what holds us. That's how we can be guaranteed that our God is is good and he is faithful to complete the work that he has started in us, that he will redeem us. It is because he loves us. And Paul builds it around that. He says, you want to know the depth of God's love? It's shown in this. Look at the crucifixion. Look at the cross. Look at the horror. See your sin on display. The effects of your sin, the root of your sin, the weeds of your sin in full bloom, unfiltered. This is the horror of it. And that is where Christ died for you. That is what he went to the cross for. He loved us there. He loves the crowd who mocks him. He loves me when I mock him. That is the place of atonement. He took your place. He bore your shame. He took it and defeated it for you. That is how deep his love for you is. And if you minimize the sin, if we water down the crucifixion, if we say, well, I don't really want to talk about how horrible it was. What I need to know is that Jesus died and and paid for my sins. If we minimize that, then we will minimize our sin. And if we minimize our sin, we minimize the gospel. And a small gospel has no power to save, no power to heal, no power to bring joy and peace in the darkest of hours. And we're seeing it all over the globe right now. Lesser versions of the gospel don't hold up. But the true gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed in his word is rock solid whatever the day may bring. To understand the gospel is to understand that where sin exists, grace abounds. 
That when I see the horror of my sin, I simultaneously see the ocean of grace that is given to me because of his love. His grace doesn't just barely cover my sin. It overthrows it. Like a giant waterfall just pouring over it. It drowns my sin. So much more does his grace abound. And only then will I understand freedom. Only then will I understand God's love. You see why this language is important? You see why it's important that we call our sin what it is, evil? That when we look at the cross, we don't just look at it and feel sorry for Jesus or or be angry with the crowds who did this. That we look at it and we actually see the reflection of our own evil hearts. That's why it's so important. Because when we do that, then we see the depth of the love on the cross. And once you see that, once you realize that even when everything in my heart is laid bare, weeds that I didn't even know were there, things that I didn't even realize I could possibly think, once, I, once that gets light gets poured over that, and Jesus is looking at it and saying, I already knew that, and I went to the cross, and I paid for that. And I've given you my righteousness so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he sees my righteousness. And when you realize that that is all because of his love, how could you ever question his love? How could you ever question his goodness? Tim Keller says the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Can you imagine a greater love than this? Can you imagine a more secure foundation? He has looked at our helpless estate owned by sin, and instead of demanding payment from us, he pays the price for us. Here in a few minutes, we're going to sing It Is Well, and one of those lines, one of the verses, such a beautiful phrase that encapsulates all this, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death that we deserved. And in a glorious exchange, he takes our sin, puts it on himself, and clothes us in his righteousness. All because of his love. And so as you live this out, what would it look like if you believed this? If you lived this out? Maybe you look at this and you say, I don't feel very righteous. I don't feel very loved. I don't feel very lovable. You are lovable because he says you are. You are righteous because he's declared you so. And the beautiful truth that we see in the cross is that you are counted as righteous and you are being made righteous. So I get it. We're not quite there. 
But he's already declared it so, and he's promised to complete the work that he has started in you. And that is sanctification, growing us into that image of righteousness so that one day in glory, when we are fully sanctified, we'll be clothed fully and live fully in the identity that we've been made righteous through Jesus Christ. He's pulling out the weeds of your heart one by one and replacing them with fruit-bearing vines, producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So that's how we should live in response. So we should be marked by humility. So we know we don't deserve any of this. We should be marked by lives of thanksgiving, knowing whatever comes, that we've been given the greatest treasure of all, that Jesus has paid our debt, and that we have an inheritance as sons and daughters. We should be marked by joy because we are always living with the greatest news. Peace because we know how everything unfolds. Generosity because of the riches that we are inheriting. Loving others because we have been fully loved. That is good news. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning that we would be reminded of what you did on the cross and that we would not be afraid to see the reflections of our own sin, but that simultaneously we would see with it how your grace abounds. And how it is love that sent you to the cross. You loved us and gave yourself up for us. God, I pray that you would comfort those who have been struggling in the pit of their sin. That they would find the freedom by exposing their sin with light. And realizing that they are loved. That they are known. That they are forgiven in Christ Jesus. And God, I pray that that understanding would spur us to live lives that declare and demonstrate this glorious truth to a world that is in desperate need of it. We ask you to do this, the power of the Holy Spirit, for your name's sake. Amen.